0: You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Mark DeLegge
1: how has colorectal cancer screening become more effective and which types have been approved for clinical use? How often should physicians recommend screening to their patients depending on the method used? Joining us to discuss interpreting new colorectal cancer screening guidelines is Dr. Lisa Boardman, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, Dr. Boardman.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Lisa, I want to know, from your perspective, what's the impact of colorectal cancer in the U.S. and globally?
2: Well, in the U.S., we expect anywhere between approximately 150,000 cases of colon and rectal cancer, pretty evenly distributed between men and women, so that your lifetime risk is about 5.4%, a little bit higher risk in men than in women. Globally, it affects 9 million people annually.
1: That's unbelievable.
2: It is unbelievable.
1: So when you say 5.4%, do you mean that during the course of my lifetime that I have a 5.4% chance of risk?
2: Exactly. Kind of spread out over everybody. If you just took everybody's chance, if you don't do something, if you don't intervene with some type of screening measure.
1: Knowing that, knowing that this is a huge problem, from your perspective, again, what's the role of early detection in colorectal cancer? What I mean by that is, does it work?
2: It absolutely works, and so we've seen over the past 20 years, actually, that the incidence of colon cancer has decreased pretty steadily, particularly among Caucasians in the U.S. and in other places that are using colon cancer screening as a early detection guideline. It makes a huge impact, and it can actually prevent cancer from even developing.
1: You know, sometimes when I talk to my patients, the first question they ask me is, am I in a high risk category or should I be concerned so to to even get there what I wanted to know from you is what do you consider to be an average risk person the mean that the person that should go through screening at a particular age but perhaps we don't get really aggressive with early on
2: right so the average risk person for average risk people we recommend that they start screening at age 50 and we call them average risk if they don't have any family history of a first-degree relative with colon cancer, or if they don't have more than two second-degree relatives in a first-degree. So that's the main thing, or other hereditary conditions like Lynch syndrome.
1: So if you had none of those, and you're an average risk patient, we'll say, who comes to visit you, what are the goals of colon cancer screening in the average risk population?
2: So the goal for those people is actually, the guidelines have switched, and they've really focused on even better than early detection is actually removal of adenomas, which are the polyps that are the precursor lesions for cancer.
1: When we talk about starting at the age of 50, I've heard little inklings that perhaps certain populations like African-Americans we may be considering starting earlier. Is that true, or is that just something I'm hearing?
2: I believe that those guidelines will become more specific for different racial and ethnic groups. There is evidence that African Americans have a higher risk of having polyps detected than Caucasian people. And so I do think that at some point we'll get more sophisticated. So some people have put that forward, but it's not yet been accepted by the major groups that are putting out the guidelines.
1: So the current guidelines that we're all using and the ones you're very familiar with, who developed these guidelines?
2: When I first started looking at all of these guidelines, I said there's more guidelines than there probably are people you could possibly do the screening on, because there were so many different guidelines. But what happened recently is that there was a joint effort panel that was put together, and they put guidelines together from the American Cancer Society, American College of Radiology, and a task force of all the gastroenterology associations. And so they're one of the major panels, so the joint effort panel. And then there's a congressionally mandated non-federal expert panel that's the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force or the USPSTF. And they're the two major guidelines now that I think that people look to for helping them figure out what kind of screening to recommend.
1: So were these basically consensus guidelines from the different organizations?
2: Mm -hmm. And so really that's, and I'd have to say, I mean, they're based on some evidence-based, you know, from information from the National Polyp Study, you know, kind of extrapolating times for when cancer would develop, but mainly they end up being consensus statements.
1: The consensus statements that are derived, and you've talked about them already, do you foresee these consensus statements changing dramatically over the next couple of years, or do you think we're pretty locked into what's been developed?
2: I definitely think, Mark, that these are going to evolve a lot. I think that the role of trying to really move more towards less invasive testing is probably going to be, hopefully, and less expensive testing. is going to be one of the major mandates and drivers for how that field will develop.
1: So, I hear a lot of advertising on television and radio, in print, and the internet regarding screening for colorectal cancer. It seems to become much more avant-garde than it was perhaps previously. Do you think that the general public, by and large, meaning the people coming to see us get it regarding the need for colorectal screening?
2: I think that from what we know of people who actually undergo it, only about half of the people who should be getting average risk screening are actually getting it done. So I think it's still in the development of getting people to feel more comfortable about even thinking about colon cancer. I think there's been a stigma to it. And I think as a group of people, we have to try to overcome that and just feel comfortable that that's a part of our bodies that needs examining and there's nothing bad about it and that the testing can be done in a way that's not Too disruptive, and that it's so much better. You know, I try to, when I talk with my patients, to really ask them to focus on, you know, this may be uncomfortable having to take a prep or get a procedure done, but that's two days out of your life. It's much worse if you get to the point of having cancer. So I do think we still have a ways to go. It's probably better than it was, but it still needs improvement.
1: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights from Reach MD Radio on XM 160 the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark DeLegge, and joining me to discuss interpreting new colorectal cancer screening guidelines is Dr. Lisa Boardman, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Consultant in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota. So Lisa, with regards to the colorectal screening guidelines now that have been established, what types of colorectal cancer screening are actually endorsed?
2: So what's endorsed is what the one guideline group, the USPSTF, did. is They divided the types of screening by their ability to early detect cancer or, you know, that were cancer detection versus polyp detection. And so in terms of the early detection of polyps, flexible sigmoidoscopy is endorsed, every five years with or without also fecal blood testing or fecal immunochemical testing, which is a stool assay. Colonoscopy is endorsed by both guidelines every 10 years in the average risk people. And CT colonography is endorsed by the joint panel every five years, as is double contrast barium enema. But the USPSTF, which is the congressionally mandated non-federal group, they don't endorse the CTC or barium contrast enema. In terms of the stool studies, which are actually for detection once cancer is already developed, annual screening with fecal occult blood testing, and it has to be the SENSA or the high sensitivity assay or the FIT test, which is the fecal immunohistochemical testing. And there is stool DNA-based testing That is acceptable, but we really don't know how often the intervals should be for that. So that's really still, I think, in the developmental phase.
1: So, Lisa, you know, there's a lot of people in the U.S. who may or may not be able to afford or have paid for certain types of screening. From your perspective, then, what I'm hearing is that some of the screening guidelines, doing a flexible sigmoidoscopy and then some stool testing would be appropriate.
2: That is offered as one of the choices, and as you're pointing out, I mean, the cost of that would be lower than a more invasive test like the or a more extensive test of the colon, like a CT colonography or the colonoscopy.
1: With the congressionally mandated panel, and you may not know this, I'm just going to ask, was there any particular reason they opted not to endorse CTC or uh, colon colonography?
2: CT colonography there's some risks we don't really know about. So, for instance, you might find extracolonic findings. So they didn't really know what the implication of that was. If you do a test and you find a tiny adrenal adenoma, is that going to generate so much more cost that it takes away the cost effectiveness of it? Radiation exposure was another reason that they said they didn't have reason to argue for or against it. But even though we don't have studies that show we would expect with CT colonography, that you'd see the same types of declines in colorectal cancer incidence and mortality. It just hasn't been validated in a controlled trial, and I think that may be part of why they held back. They did their guidelines by really doing this huge systematic evaluation of all the published data, and I think that's why they were left. Because we don't have these things that go head-to-head with actual mortality, they just said, well, we can't say for sure if that would make a difference.
1: At these particular panels, was there any discussion about the buzzword I hear about all the time, which are flat polyps and perhaps the ability of CTC or colonoscopy to determine those?
2: Right. Actually, there was that discussion made and it's also been addressed in like individual articles related to CT colonography. So there had been a a recent study that found about 9% of colonoscopy that the polyps would turn out to be flat polyps. And they found in the article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine of the accuracy of CT colonoscopy, that they found about 2.4% of their patients had flat polyps that were found by CT colography. The miss rate is there for colonoscopy also. So I, I think actually they're probably, they could be pretty well matched actually for detection of flat polyps. Flat polyps are just very difficult to see, even endoscopically, because you have to use additional imaging, optical chromoendoscopy or narrow narrowband imaging, and you have to have a subtle hint, you know, to see that polyp, so they really are troublesome.
1: We talked about this a little bit, but from the screening methods that you talked about, are there some additional limitations?
2: Any of the tests, like the fecal occult blood test and the FIT test, the limitation okay. is that they're not as specific so it may happen that that'll prompt a colonoscopy that might not necessarily have been needed. That's a risk. The flexig, you know, is limited because it only gives you the view of the left side of the colon. Any test, so right now, CT calligraphy and colonoscopy and barium enema all require a bowel prep, which anybody who's undergoing it looks at as a big limitation because that's quite onerous to have to undergo. And then the risk, you know, colonoscopy, you've got to... Consider you, you're going to be using conscious sedation, so the person has to be, and there's a risk of perforation, about 2.8, maybe almost 3 per 1,000 risk of perforation. So you really only want to send a patient to colonoscopy who could be somebody who could undergo colon surgery if they needed it, because that's a possible outcome. I see those as all kind of the risks that you put together and with the picture when you discuss those options with a patient.
1: Well, I'd like to thank my guest from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, Dr. Lisa Boardman. Dr. Boardman, thank you very much for being our guest this week on
0: GI Insights.
2: I certainly enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America Incorporated. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at reachmd.com and use promo code AGA. Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is proud to sponsor this important and quality programming for ReachMD listeners. Takeda does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by the AGA Institute. Based in Deerfield, Illinois... Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is a wholly owned subsidiary of Takeda Pharmaceutical Company Limited, the largest pharmaceutical company in Japan. In the United States, Takeda markets products for diabetes, insomnia, wakefulness, and gastroenterology, and is developing products in the areas of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other conditions. Takeda is committed to striving toward better health for individuals and progress in medicine by developing superior pharmaceutical products. To learn more about the company and its products, visit www.tpna.com.